So welcome back, guys, to episode number two of the Amateur Theatre Podcast. I think I meant to say with me, your host, with your host, how do you say that without it sounding really weird? With your host, Michael Spate. No, I think that sounds a bit crazy. Anyway, today we'll be talking to Simon Taverner, a good friend of mine who I've known for a number of years now. We do a, a deep dive into all things amateur theatre in Oxford. And we cover off a load of interesting stuff around script work. We look at his specific approach to auditions and casting. How you turn an idea or a concept into a show. The audition process. And generally try and draw out as many insights as I possibly can from his vast experience. To give you guys a bit more information on creating your own shows. So enjoy. Amateur theatre is as good as anything you'll see on the professional stage. Because people are paid doesn't actually doesn't actually give them any greater skill. It doesn't actually give them any greater experience, it doesn't necessarily mean they're any better. There are some fantastic amateur actors out there who could easily have made their life on the professional stage, but chose not to. Mm -hmm. And so they carry on doing it for the love of things, amateur. And at its worst, amateur theatre is the sort of thing that everyone dreads going to see something in a village hall that is the, the source of parody, and we all know how bad it can get. But the people doing it are loving it. Mm. And we shouldn't ever seek to take that joy of making theatre away from them. I'm wondering whether there should be, whether amateur theatre suffers for one of the many reasons that people just come and go, ah, oh, they tried, didn't they? There will always be a certain level of forgiveness towards an amateur show simply because, oh, aren't they doing well? You've got friends and family in the audience who aren't going to criticise, well, on the whole, I'm going to criticise you as harshly. But it is about expectations, and occasionally amateur theatre will surprise and delight, and sometimes it will live down to your expectations. But then I've seen some truly dreadful professional work. Yeah. And stuff that should never have been put on the professional stage, it should never have left the rehearsal room. Okay. And how does that, how does that come to pass? It comes to a, almost an arrogance, of course we know what we're doing, of course we have to be doing it right. Right. And uh, when you're trapped in the bubble of the rehearsal room, of course it feels right, what you're doing. Okay. And it's only when you put it in front of an audience that the audience is saying, <laughs> what? The what? <laughs> Why on earth are you doing? No, stop it. And everyone has bought into the concept of this wonderful, con this idea, and this idea of, doing something so radical that it has to be brilliant. And it's actually often Emperor's New Clothes thing. Right. That you're told it's going to be brilliant, so it is going to be brilliant, so therefore it is brilliant. Whereas an audience member who hasn't bought into this bubble before going, what? No, 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 no. 
Is that is it more prevalent within amateur theatre than professional theatre? Because of what you've just said, although I'd never thought about it or put my finger on it, it does sound a lot like what may happen in an amateur rehearsal room where the people taking part are more inclined to go along with something because they're not experienced enough or they're not strong enough in their beliefs to stand up to a director or a producer or someone. And therefore, you can run through a rehearsal process in an amateur theatre show and get through a run with people still going, no, I think that was probably, you know, that was a good thing we chose to all be naked at that moment or whatever it might be. It seems that in a professional show, the actors who have seen a lot of stage time might be going, what? No, 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 no. Well, this doesn't make any sense. And I'm just wondering whether that's that could be part of a an understanding of how amateur theatre may go from zero to minus 100 because people are just dragged along without standing up to decisions that are being made and putting across more sensible artistic choices. I think a lot depends on the culture of your amateur company mm-hmm. because there are many that have committee structures overseeing things that have... Which I'd like to get onto because sometimes I feel that can be a bit... There, there, Cumber- there, cumbersome as a there, there are there are many things to talk about committees, but <laughs> in terms of the culture, there can be there there can be a committee person who the cast can go to if they've got any concerns they don't feel that they can address through the director or <clears throat> would prefer not to. Yeah, but you're saying that's a that's a buffer. And that's a that's a statement against what I just said, as in that will act as a as a potential kind of saviour of a amateur performance because you have those things in place. And maybe in a professional company, if Sam Mendes is saying we're all going to be dancing around with umbrellas at this moment, no one's going to say, "Sorry, mate, that's a bad choice." Some people will have the guts and the stature to stand up to a director, and some some won't, and that's the, that's the case. Amateur or professional. Okay. If if you're new to a company and you're just out of drama school in the professional world, you're not going to have the same clout in the rehearsal room as uh, whoever it might be or dame whatever who walks in, does everything beautifully, and refuses to take any nonsense from mm. anybody. It's it's the nature of things. I'm just wondering what shapes. I'm wondering what shapes those amateur theatre productions that we just mentioned that might not live up to expectations. Because I'd like to get onto. Like how you, I, and the wider world construct an amateur show. But it's quite nice that we've got to a point where if we can just maybe get an idea of what makes one fail, it might shape kind of some of our conversations about how we make one succeed. I think the two key things, almost almost beyond anything else, are choice of play. Oh, okay. So we're talking right, okay. right, right back at the beginning. Choice of play... And casting. Okay. Because a talented cast can make a weak script work. Right. And but some scripts are so bad that no no cast will ever, ever redeem them. Right. But if if you as a director don't have full confidence in the script and your what you want what stories you want to tell from that script, you'll never make it work. Okay. You can do an adequate job. But you will never have the commitment, the buy-in, the passion yeah. to see it through. Because as an amateur director, it's six months of your life that you're giving over to a project. From the minute you 
concept conceptualize I'm doing it I'm doing this it's set on set on a, on a moon outside Alpha Centauri and who cares that Twelfth Night should never be done that way <laughs> Twelfth Night should never be done that way I know but <laughs> but, but, but you, you know what I mean you, 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 you come up with a concept because you love the play you have a vision of the way you want to do it yeah it may be that you want to do it absolutely dead straight as per the author's apparent intentions and off we go but unless unless you've chosen the right play for the right group at the right time, you can't. You you're starting off on the back foot mm-hmm. because you have to you have to acknowledge the abilities of the people who are likely to come forward at casting. Right. That's one of the big differences with without between amateur and professional. As professionals, you can go out and you can find whoever you need to fill any given part. Yeah. Yeah. As amateurs, we are reliant on the people who come through our audition rooms having the skills and talents to do what we need. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. that that's totally understandable. So I'd like to go on to community theatre and the Guild, which I'm I'm sure has some kind of common threads running through it as to how a community theatre would be set up. Is there like a, like a really like, like encapsulate what it is to go into it and to, you know, how it operates. So you've got... The Guild has has a committee. Right. Which is a chair, vice chair, treasurer, secretary, membership secretary, room bookings secretary, and then a few other. Okay. And they meet on a monthly basis, as necessary, to conduct the business of the Guild. The Guild is a registered charity mm-hmm. with aims of promoting theatre within Oxfordshire. And will stage at least four shows per year, possibly more, depending on circumstance. So that will be a spring production at the Playhouse, which will be between May, between March and May. Then a summer production in an outdoor setting yeah. around July time. Then two autumn pieces in smaller venues, usually the old fire station and one other, which can qualify be a found space. Mm-hmm. And then there will be smaller scale festival pieces. It's got a completely open audition policy. Mm-hmm. You do not have to be a member to audition. People are cast on merit. Mm-hmm. It's 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 an open, honest audition process where no one is excluded. Yeah. Okay. From from participation, and and people do not have to have directed for the guild in the past. That have acted. That have had. I've had any contact with the guild, if they're the right people to direct, they will get appointed. Okay. And so it's a very open company. In many ways, it works more like a production company where it's it goes out, it finds a project, it funds a project, it supports a project. Right. And it moves on. Right, okay. And it has a membership currently in about 130 people, has an audition mailing list of in the hundreds... And whilst you will see some people in two or three of the productions across the year, you will never see anyone in all of the shows. Okay. It's not it's not a troupe of actors that go on from project to project to project. Each project is a self-contained unit with its own budget, with its own director, production manager, and team to support it. Mm-hmm. And so the guild the guild will arrange things like room bookings for auditions and rehearsals securing the venues, 
helping you build your team to right. put on the show. Okay. But it, it will try to be as hands off as it as it can whilst also making sure that everything happens. Okay. So that that, that that's the structure which which put makes it different to a lot of the small village based groups where it's pretty much the same group of actors and you go out and you choose a play that fits those actors. Yeah. And I'm not saying the guild is perfect in everything it does. It isn't. No, it would never claim to be. But it, ha- there is an expectation of a certain quality in mm-hmm. everything that we do, and that requires effort to maintain. Yeah. Do you find the framework of the guild more secure and more freeing because you know there's a group of people that will support you and deliver on what you ask them to? Or is it more stifling and therefore the the freedom to just go out and say, I'm going to find a tech person who will do as I say because I need that right now? Well, is, it, is it a balancing act? Is it is some good, some bad, and it's no... I, I, have, I have done both, as, 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 as you will know, because where we, where we first yes. met was at the OFS, and that was with my company, Oxford Triptych Theatre, yeah. and my never-ending series of modern dress Shakespeare. That gave me the freedom to do exactly what I wanted when I wanted. Mm-hmm. Because my first directing experience with the Guild was not a fully happy one. Right, okay. And was this prior was this prior to this, o- OTT? This, this this was two thousand I joined the the Guild in two thousand and four when I needed someone to play Lorenzo in Merchant of Venice at short notice. I stepped in and did that. And then I pitched to direct their fiftieth anniversary production of The Merry Wives of Windsor. Oh, I didn't know that. Which I set in nineteen fifty five, which is the year the Guild was founded. Nineteen fifties music, nineteen fifties costumes, nineteen fifties setting, all all worked really, really well until the dress rehearsal where I was told by the committee that I had to move the interval and cut twenty minutes from the show. And <laughs> with no extra rehearsal. And no How'd that come to pass? How does that I had well. Did someone come and see it and think this is slightly too long? Or yes, the, the, through through the through the tech and get, getting and dress rehearsal, they and things got very heated. Yeah, I can imagine. W- w- words words of a um, vulgar nature were exchanged. I believe I have no direct <laughs> recollection of this anymore, and I walked out. Right, because I couldn't, in all conscience, ask my cast to. The day before, slash... The day before, to change so much about a show. And so that that was the trigger for me setting up on my own. Mm-hmm. And so I did Bridge of the Third, King Lear, As You Like It in Bull Pony, Henry the Fourth, parts one and two merged together into... I remember that one, yeah. And ended with... Much to do about nothing, which closed the old fire station in its current form, as then was. So, and I'd done a couple of pieces of the BT before that, uh, my night with Reg and the Laramie Project. So I'd, I'd done, I'd, I had a, a big body of work in between. Yeah. So what? What was it that sucked you back in then? It came down to. The resources that you can muster for a self-fund, essentially a self-funded show, yeah, are limited. Yeah, definitely. I was very proud of the work I did, and it, 
because I was working with Town and Gown in an Oxford setting, meant that I was able to cast age appropriately mm-hmm. for for all for all the roles, and certainly I believe that those those students I worked with got a lot out of the experience of having working with established community actors, and vice versa. Yeah, I think I think it worked really well as a concept, but the ability to do to take those bigger ideas, to take those bigger projects on, you can't do on your own. Yeah, agreed. You don't have access to the playhouse. You don't have access to those bigger spaces. You don't have the access to two-week runs. You just don't have it. It's only the larger companies yeah. that can offer you those opportunities. Yeah. So it was an ambition thing, then? It, it, was, ha- it was having... And it was also... Oh, it's, it's time for us all to move on from what happened a few years ago. Let's... Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's draw draw a line under that and, and move forward. And yes, and so I pitched to direct for the Guild, and they were looking specifically for a comedy. And as is my wont, I have many, 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 many ideas. And I pitched Jess Butterworth, Jerusalem, and Charlotte Jones, Humble Boy, and a couple of others who I can't honestly remember which they were now. And we were very enthusiastic about Jerusalem. And despite my having been told that the rights were available on a formal application, no, they're not. So Humble Boy it was. Fantastic play. Just as Humble Boy went on sale, the rights for Jerusalem were released. <laughs> so in the end, I could have done it. And it was, it was one of those zeitgeisty plays that I was just dying to get my hands on it. But that was not to be. Yeah. But Humble Boy, it was a show that relied on a very naturalistic set. It was set in a Cotswolds garden with a large tree that dropped an apple on cue. <laughs> and it, 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 needed, it needed more resources than I could ever have poured in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On, on, a personal, on a personal basis. And so it needed, it needed a big, bigger company to pull it off. And the visuals of that show were stunning. Right. It really was a sumptuous piece of set building that I could never, never have achieved. Yeah. And I went on, gone on to direct for the for the guild in the playhouse, on a fire station, various various gardens. I've production managed. I've stage managed. I've thro- I've thrown myself into into that world yeah but that doesn't mean that I want to always do that no no I get it no it's it's I I totally understand like the what drivers exist to have drawn you back in like I I can feel it from doing my own shows that just having even having the team behind you let alone the resources to create the vision just having the support of people who are like-minded but also kind of uh, although within the amateur world take it seriously, mm. is just, yeah. Yes, ha- ha- having the resources of 60 years of history behind you, you've got a reputation that you have to maintain, which is itself a pressure. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't want to let down 60 years of history by doing something a bit naff. Yeah. And so, but ha- having 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 the financial, but also the institutional memory resources that you can draw on, people who know where that prop might be found, who's got a chaise long, who's got yeah. an old record player with a big brass trumpet. 
just just having having those little bits of knowledge that you can you can pull on if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It just makes makes life a lot easier. But you are ultimately then answerable to a committee who might cut twenty minutes off the show a day before. They, they have they haven't done that to any director since, and I actually found one of the ways to avoid some of this. No, it's not really avoid, but if you are serving on the committee, you you get to understand a little bit more of what, how what is going on, and so that 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 can be a yeah ca- can be a help. Certainly. But it also can be can be a hindrance if you're serving on the committee because you never want it to appear that the committee is just appointing itself to direct all the time. Yeah, and okay. it's le- learning how to balance how often should I be pitching, right? And there have been times where it's been clear that not many pitches are coming in, and I will throw throw my hat into the ring again. Yeah, simply because we needed we need a good good show. Yeah, I've got a pile of plays two foot high that I can draw from of things I I've got the, that vision. Yeah, ready for. Let's see if there's anything that speaks to me for this year. Yeah, and that venue and, and that time. And and what the spark of joy comes as soon as you find a script that you believe is gonna you'll be able to shape into something or having heard or seen a production or any of those things where where is the it it is about almost creating something from nothing because mm-hmm. you've got words on the page you've got an empty space and then an image fl- flits into my head and that suddenly triggers something right okay and then a production grows out of it it rarely comes from having seen a production okay because that that's just derivative yeah that's just it's difficult to extricate yourself from what they did and how they did it. Yes, it's much better to create from scratch, mm-hmm. if if at all possible. And having seen as much Shakespeare as I as, as I have over the years, it's impossible now to. Well, there's only three or four plays I haven't seen, <laughs> so most things I have seen, so most many of them multiple times, mm-hmm. and so it's hard hard to say. Well, I can do a totally original version of Twelfth Night. Because I've seen it so many times, I can't, I can't, un, I can't unsee that. Mm-hmm. All I can say is, I would never do it like that or that or that. I right. would do it this way. But it's one of those. It's it's hard. It's hard to put all of that aside, but it is possible. Yeah. And so I have come up with some relatively original re- rethinkings about Shakespeare, resettings. But it's never based on a concept as such. Mm-hmm. It's based about a story, an image, an idea, right? Of how I want to approach it, and on the whole, it's driven by the text. It's not. I I would never want as a director to impose on a text. I would always like to draw from a text. Okay. So how? What is the kind of? What's the timeline or the mental kind of? What's the word I'm looking for? How, when when you pick up a script and read it, how how are you then formulating that? How does that image come to you? And how are you then formulating out of that what you want to see on stage? Where the image comes from, I can't answer because it it will just come. Okay, will... and just to clarify, image you're saying like. The, the, the setting and the the what you're 
in your head seeing on stage, or is there something more ethereal about the image? Well, let, let, let's give a concrete example of something that has recently started coming into my head for, for a possible production. Let's do it. Which is Richard II, which is a very underperformed Shakespeare play. Mm-hmm. A great play. I've seen it twice, once with David Taylor, once with Eddie Redmayne. I've seen big people do this play, and both done in very, very different ways. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the idea came into my head is I want to do this set on a giant throne. And I'm talking something about six metres tall. Oh, right, okay. Which would be like a climbing frame. Yeah. So the, the seat of the throne would be at such a height that you could have doors coming through underneath it. Yeah. And it would be a, a, a very, very visceral, visual, physical presence because it's about a battle for the throne mm-hmm. and the idea of... It gives you height, it gives you levels, it gives you all sorts of fun theatre stuff to play with. Yeah, brilliant. And I've no idea where that idea of the giant throne came from, but I then started thinking about the practical... Well, I can make this out of scaffolding with some cladding, so it can be relatively low-tech to build Mm -hmm. and construct, quite challenging to rehearse because of clambering up and down, how do I do that? Not fully resolved all of those ideas yet. And this this is something I'm not likely to pitch to anybody until for perhaps a 2024 production. Right. So you'll sit on it, you'll stew on it and you'll Yeah, it will it will it will sit there and percolate. I've got plays that are on my list that I want to do that have sat there for 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 years and until the right time mm-hmm. to pitch it comes and I'll do it. Yeah. And so, yeah, the Richard II idea is very much a back burner, but it will, it will sit and percolate. The, the visuals will, will clarify, mm-hmm. and because it, if it involves scaffolding, then perhaps I can go more grungy with the aesthetic of the piece. So not not to go all pretty and roughs and and period, but something a little bit more punky. Yeah, that will be quite different for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how much of again, we're going to jump ahead here very briefly. But how much of that thought process is shaped around your the limitations of finances and space and kind of I don't know your who you will have to build the scaffolding, the scaffold oh. throne and stuff. Are you do you allow yourself to be limited? Because of the very nature of yes, okay, absolutely. Because it, it's it's about being honest with yourself about what can be achieved by any given group. Brilliant. Okay, and that doesn't mean limiting your ambition; it means tailoring your ambition. Okay. Which which which, which may sound counterintuitive, but it, it's it's acknowledging the things that you can't even go near. Right. So you're not going to set it in the ocean because you can't. Flood the stage, for example. I mean, I, you could probably create that aesthetic if you wanted to, but yeah. Uh, it, it, but it, it's. Am I likely to be a? Am I likely to be able to cast this from the pool of people that I've seen acting in my local area mm-hmm. over the past few years? Right. Okay. Is that going to be possible? What's the What's the group? size in time in terms of its technical team mm-hmm. what can i achieve who who are the people like who would 
take this and run with it and develop it and relish the opportunity to to create something right along these lines. What are the resources going to be for rehearsal? Because this could be quite challenging to rehearse. How can I? How could we make that work? The if I want a very specific aesthetic, that's going to come with a certain costume cost. Is that likely to be achievable? If not, can I maintain the eth- the, the ethos of my my aesthetic whilst doing it on a, on a on a slightly cheaper basis? Okay, and it's it, it's being honest about the things that you can't change and maximizing the things that you can. Okay, and that 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 to me is about being practical about your ambition about tailoring your ambition rather than lim- seeing them as limits. Yeah. No, no, I get it. That makes sense. I, I I suppose the listener won't know that I pulled the face when you first said that, but I was I, in my head I was just processing the, the statement as in are you limiting your vision as in because I've always approached everything in my directing career as let let me have free thought as to where it might go and what it might do, and then I come back and do what you've just dis- discussed, rather than setting out those parameters from the start and working within the kind of framework of that's going to cost £2,000, that's going to cost £1,000, I can do that for 50 quid. I can get those guys for you know whatever. And then shaping it from that, I have tended to go, right, I would like to see... A plane fly down, <clears throat> land in the courtyard, and everyone get out of it, and the production begins from there. And then I've gone, okay, can't. I don't know any pilots, so <laughs> yeah, it's. As I'm not, I, I'm just trying to. I'm really, I'm trying to gauge kind of different approaches to it in terms of the whether you're whether you are having those thoughts, but you just you the two the ability to have it and also constrain it is working in tandem because you know already that you know. If, if if you're part of a well established company, yeah, then then you know what what they can and they they can't achieve. You know how far you can push things. Right. You know how ambitious you can make them be. Yeah. So, Chariots of Fire, which is probably my most ambitious play mm-hmm. project, turning the Playhouse Theatre into a running track, having a revolve, having audience sat on stage cast of 27 150 costumes it was utter madness for an amateur company to take that on but we did it yeah and i had to comp- i had to make some compromises so were the costumes the best costumes i could have got no were they the costumes that i could afford and that would deliver the aesthetic absolutely so uh, what would you say in terms of like if you clearly you have the experience and the wherewithal to make to shape it in that manner. How what would if there was something to pull out of that from someone starting up? How would you say that they approach finding those constraints and living within them? Because I can I <clears throat> I can imagine from my own personal perspective, but also someone coming in and saying, not really understanding how you construct an amateur show. Okay, we're gonna. Everyone's gonna have a sword at the start. It'll be a massive battle. We're gonna have forty people just coming on, and you know, and then the rest of the play will have the ten main cast and the other 
30 guys will just have to go home after that opening scene. Like, I can imagine someone having some sort of vision that's clearly unattainable, but not wholly understanding how it's not practical, it's not feasible, it's not financially viable. It's it's very difficult if you are a direct and neutral company. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know, you don't have the existing relationships with Mister X, Miss Y, to know what they can help you achieve and what they will just put their foot down and say, "No, you're not doing that." Right. It's very difficult, and it's always best, if possible, to have worked with the company in some other capacity mm-hmm. before you start directing for them. Yeah. Because you, you've got a bit of a sense of the dynamics that you're going to be working with. You won't have a full sense, but you will have some relationships on which you can build, mm-hmm. some people you wish will wish to avoid, some people you wish to cultivate. And sometimes the style of, of the director doesn't match the style of the company. No matter what you do, if you, if you don't resolve that within the first couple of weeks, yeah. people aren't going to follow you in the same way. That makes sense. So, we're about to hopefully go through the practicalities of putting a show on. Um, in, in terms of an amateur actor or director looking to gather the correct skills to put a show on, what, again, as briefly or as elaborately as you like, what, where would you say channel your energies? Would you say... Go to drama school. Fuck it. Just go to drama school and come back to us. Or would you say, go to drama school if you're looking to pursue it professionally. If you're not, here are some YouTube videos. Here's some training courses. Here's a blog that you should read every day. There are some things that you have to do at drama school that really do help. The ability to grab a script and learn it really rapidly is something that many people leave drama school having Mm -hmm. had to do and had to get good at it quickly. Yeah. And that's great. Yeah, and things like projection and I don't know how you breathe. You know, there, there's a lot. I, I find there's a lot of very practical skills that you yeah. wouldn't find yourself learning unless you went out of your way to yeah. find a YouTube video or something to do them. And having basic stage combat tuition really, really helpful for a lot of shows. Yeah, yeah. But does it help you find the emotional truth of a character? Not necessarily. No. Does it does it give you the life experience on which to draw to play Grecian slave? Not necessarily. A lot of find, finding the inner truth of your character is something that comes from your own understanding of the way the world works, mm-hmm. your ability to be empathetic, to read a text and to interpret it. And a director can help you bring that out, but you need to have the emotional core on which you can draw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes, if you're playing a maid who brings in a cup of tea, you don't need so much of that. But if you're if you're if you've got a really heavy dramatic role, you need if you need the technical skills to be able to project and clarity of diction and a stage presence, but you can't be taught stage presence, you've either got it or you haven't. Right, okay. I don't think the ability to hold yourself on stage and make yourself the centre of attention is, is an innate skill. You've got people who can just walk into a room and say, I'm here. Yeah, no, I agree. And people who walk into the... And no matter how much they pretend, you know they're pretending. Right. 
it hurts to hear you say that. I agree. But what's the... A lot of what this conversation would... I'd like to be about is to help someone who goes, I'm just a bit... I don't know. I'm not getting this. Or I'm not... You know, as an actor, I'm not... Why am I not firing? Or I'm, as a director, I can't just... I can't deal with that situation or handle that scenario very well. But is there an element of unlucky, mate? If you haven't got it, you haven't got it. There are certain things that you can never learn. Right, okay. And I think stage presence is probably one of them. You you either have the ability to be a magnet to everyone's attention, mm-hmm. or you don't. And, and some people just... There are some people who you just will always watch. Right, yeah, because, yeah, yeah. Just because they're fascinating. They may not even be the best actor on stage. Yeah. But they're just utterly fascinating to watch. Yeah, yeah. And that's an unlearnable thing. Yeah, it's everyone. Everyone is going to have a, their own X factor. And okay. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it really doesn't. And trying to trying to find that in audition is the challenge and the joy of it. Right. From a director's point of view, or from the actor's point of view, oh, or from from a, from a director's point of view. Yeah. That. The audition process has always been one of my most favourite elements yeah, of being on the show. I agree. I love the chance to meet new people, just to be surprised as what they can do, and to see old, old, old friends and acquaintances try try something slightly different. Yeah. So what um, th- that that is that is the point at which all those building blocks that you've had that that, that little little Lego kit of the show that's been in a box and different bags you start ripping those bags apart and you start building something because that's where the human starts coming in yeah yeah, yeah. and seeing, seeing seeing that new person who just walks in and okay don't need to go any further yeah. that's that sorted yeah yeah no I, I agree okay so let, I would like to you've you've naturally taken us on to where I'd like to go to but just to wrap up the previous conversation um, what are we talking about in terms of those people just Trying to build the toolkit. Go and see as much theatre as you can. Okay, cool. I, th- I think that that watching film and TV only takes you so far. Right. There is something very different about being in the same space, physical space, of a group of actors performing a play. Right. Yeah. Or or a musical or what, what, what whatever the form is. Yeah. If you go and see good theatre and bad theatre, you will learn from it. Right. Okay. You may not understand what you're learning from it. But you will, by osmosis, pick up, pick up the bits that speak to you, and the things that you never want to do. Right. Yep. And I think that I went to see Dame Judy in All's Well That Ends Well at the RSC years ago. She had a tiny role, but she did it. She did almost nothing on stage. She held her hands in a very precise. Way, it was just it gave it was but she made her watch you watch her because of her stillness, right? And that's a really useful thing for an actor to a developing actor to see mm-hmm. that you don't always have to be doing something for someone to notice you, right? So it's those little things like that that you pick up from going to see that live theatre that you wouldn't get from reading the book or from no, you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't pick that up. Yeah, yeah. Seeing it in performance and seeing 
because you get a sense of what's work, what's working for the audience around you, what's working for you, mm-hmm. gives you an even greater insight. Yeah. So it's great to see those big name actors doing their great work, but but you will also go and see an amateur Midsummer Night's Dream somewhere or Acorn in the local village hall. Um, it won't have the same production values. It won't have the same quality of acting. But there will still be moments where you think, oh, that was great. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, yeah. And that sets you thinking. And just go in with an open mind and accept it for what it is. Yeah. And see what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And yeah. just, don't, 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 be too, don't be too analytical about it. Just let it, let it wash over you and, let, and absorb the things that, that actually made you react. Mm-hmm. And I think that will help inform you, right? As to when you'll get, when you want, want to go forward. And, I, the, I, and, I, and the other thing is, be honest with yourself about your current level. Yeah, that's really important. I agree. Walk, walk. If you've got next to no experience walking in, and assuming that you are going to be Benedict or Beatrice or Leah or Blanche in Streetcar Named Desire. may not be right for you yeah look at the project see if, see if there is something that speaks to you in terms of roles and go go with it with an open mind because i'm sure we are both auditioned people who who have walked in with the assumption that here i am here i am your savior i am going to be i've had the email before they arrived saying that they were my savior and they would be arriving at five o'clock just to just to confirm this for you. And they never get the part. And I, I am very much an instinctive caster. Yeah. I I will know if something feels right. Yeah. And if it doesn't, I shouldn't be doing it. Right. So the so first first round is always off the, away from the text, mm-hmm. but with related things. So if it's Shakespeare, I will use other Shakespeare comedies or other Shakespeare histories with a, with a similar feel, with similar character types. My reason for doing that is I don't want people coming in preparing to give me their big-name role. Right. I want them to come in. I want them to pick up a text. Oh, so you're not even giving to them prior to well, the... in the past, I've always just... Right, there'll be scenes in the rehearsal room, in the audition room. Right. Now, with changes of regulations giving them prior sight of it and asking them to print out the scenes they want to do right. is what is what how that has changed. But on the whole, I don't like them to prepare for a specific character with specific speeches. I my first round auditions are assessing potential. Ah, oh, you see we're different. I, I I don't want to see anyone give me a performance at their first round audition. Okay. That's what re- recalls are where I start working on partnerships. Mm-hmm pairings, family groupings, calling people for specific sections, yeah. and working on the text yeah, yeah, that yeah. we will be performing. And my most elaborate of that was when I directed Pride and Prejudice for the Guild, which has, of course, the Bennett family, which is mother, father, and five daughters. And my recall process for that was more than six hours long. Really? Because I tried as many people out in mm-hmm. as many different combinations, because I was building a family, mm-hmm. and it had to feel like a family for me. Yeah. My issue, not issue, my my 
thoughts on that are I'm well aware that someone having prepared something, read it a million times, done it for the last 12 auditions they did, they will have shaped it into something that they feel is, you know, pristine and beautiful. And you, you don't get to see someone under pressure and someone kind of interpreting a text that's new to them. They've worked out all the nuances prior to coming into the room. But I do find, I have found when I've given people a piece of paper and said, you've got 15 minutes, can I have a read, come back and bring me something. All I get is a person standing in front of me with a sheet of paper reading it back to me. And I, ah, but if you're if you're just doing that with one person, one actor at a time, yes, you'll have that problem. Right. Okay. I, I work on the whole. I work in group audition settings. Ah, okay. So, so, that's, okay, so, so this, I'm not asking them to give me a speech. Right. I'm asking them to work on a scene. So you. So okay. So let's let's take a step back then. So I get the format of it. So you're inviting a group of people to arrive at a certain time. Well, well in certainly. Up until the start of recent, recent let's forget, forget recent restrictions. Let's just go with it. What, what I my auditions are from seven thirty to nine thirty mm-hmm. on Tuesday, again on Thursday, and then on Sunday afternoon. So everyone arrives at the start of this. Okay, so everyone's coming at the same time. Okay, yeah. And they will then there will be a, a series of duologues, maybe may, a couple of a couple of solo pieces, just in case I have, I've got uneven numbers. Right. Some scenes for three, but on the whole, duologues. Right, you will know. You will then go off and have twenty minutes to prepare, or ten minutes, or however long, depending on the numbers in the room. Mm-hmm. So they will get a chance to work with one another to develop that little sequence, and come and present it to everybody in the room. Okay, so the first, so the first, and then, then then swap partners and do another scene, then swap partners and do another right, scene. Right, so most f- people will get at least three bites of the cherry to work on three three characters right. with three different partners in a, ra- in a range of material. Okay, and are you reshaping the dynamic as you go? Or have you pre-determined? No, I don't know who's turning up. They... No, no, but I mean, so if you've got Jill and John and they come in together and you're like, oh, John's a bit crap, can we put Jill with Derek because he's a bit better? Are you, are you shaping it like that as you no, go? No, or... total, total, their choice. Okay. I allow that. I just say, work, work with someone who first, first round, do whatever. Second round, work. Right, you will now work with someone different. Okay, Third so you round, work with someone different again. Okay, no, I like that. That's slightly um, different to how my brain had processed what you just said. So yeah, it's, it's not working on. I'm not asking anyone to d- deliver a monologue that takes me into the depths of their soul. It can often be quite a short comic. Right interaction. So, what are you gaining from that, and potentially missing out? Because I would say that, and you are certainly more experienced than, than I am. I would say that the standard setup for an audition is to come with a monologue, deliver your monologue, and then potentially be given something from the text to go away, whether it's to partner up or not, but to go away, read, and come back and deliver that. Are you, am I right in thinking that, or is that? I, 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 I yeah, I. I know I am unusual in the way I work. Okay, so that okay, so that is so. So people, people there, there is an expectation that there'll be set scenes that you you'll, you can prepare, or please bring your your contemporary and your Shakespeare monologue. Yeah. Blah 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 blah. Well, so what I'm saying is, I'm trying to say to the actor who's listening, like, be aware that the standard structure might be this, although you're presenting something different, which is great, and for the director. 
I'm saying to them, listen to this, your view, because actually you don't have to conform to a standard structure. You can present your auditions in a number of different ways. I, what, what, what I get out of it is I get to see actors being flexible. Yeah. And that gives me a far greater clue as to their potential mm-hmm. that someone walks in and gives the 31st performances. I left no ring with him. What means this? If I, I've had, I, I did that in the past. Yeah. Of saying, please bring me your favourite Shakespeare script. Peace. And after the sort of sixth performance of Viola's Ring speech of an evening, I, I just lost the will to ever hear it again. Mm-hmm. What I've historically found is that what you do get to see is the really the good stuff comes out. The ones who have prepared and know what they're doing and delivering a speech that that hits home, you can you pull them out straight away. They're not they're not floundering, they're not tripped up by the the just a bad day or the pressure of the space that you put them in because they've had time to prepare it and they're mentally ready as opposed to someone who's come in and you've gone Right today you're going to be doing this and like oh no shit I can't I'm not ready I'm yeah. not so I, I like I'm listening to what you're saying I do like the idea that actually by pairing them up you're giving them some security but also you're testing their metal to a certain degree yeah I I've had times in the past where the audition was the best I ever got out of an actor okay what well, because they came in prepared because and... they were so polished ah, okay. for that yeah that actually in terms of directability they had none ah, okay and and also that does say there's a I've again just to jump in I have seen people who have performed a Shakespeare piece that they want in the manner they want to perform it and from the moment you cast them and try and change the way they did it in audition you can't it's not about getting the best out of them they're still going to perform it very well but they want to do it in that way. Yes. You're like, oh no. Um, and that's that's what I'm that's what my first round is set up to avoid. Okay, that's brilliant. I believe very much in the two stage I'm at a casting process mm-hmm. in that you need to test out specific partnerships and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And so I will always I will set out in a very prescriptive way that I at two thirty, I want to see this group do that, that group do that, that group do that. In the second round, we're talking in the second about. round. Okay. So I, they will have, they will have had the scene, and it will always be a scene, not a monologue. Right. It will always be group work. I want you to work on this. They won't get time to work with each other ahead of time. Just but they know the part they're playing. They, obviously, they, 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 can, they can look at the text. They can become familiar with it. Yeah. I don't want them to learn it. Don't want. I do not want anything that feels like a performance. Yeah. I want it to be a sense of play. Yeah, okay. I want it to be a sense of fun. Yeah, I want it in, just engage me with the text. Okay, and so okay, just while we're on, actually, what so what specifically are you looking for within that framework? What are the what are the things that then pop up and jump out to you from an individual that make you go? And I'm not saying specifically that's the person for that part, but as an actor, what is it that you're seeing that that sparks your imagination. Let's say first round, because obviously first round you're whittling down to. First round, I can tell immediately who was a no. Okay. Very, very much. It's very okay. much, very much easier for me to to weed out the people who just do not stand a chance. Okay, so so tell me, give me just one or two or whatever it is things 
that mean there are no. And that because maybe someone listening can go, shit, I do that a lot. Or I, I need to revisit this because that's something that I, you know, might, might lose the opportunity to show something else because I'm doing this and getting cold early on. Um, or is it just a gut? A lot of it is gut. Some of it is... And a basic inability to project to fill an audition room. Right. Even it's going to take a lot. So you're saying if there's areas, if there's flaws which take, it's going to take you as a director a lot of work to bring them up to a level that you need them at, it's not worth your time. Yeah. And people whose instincts just don't match yours. Oh, okay. So. You give an example of what you mean by that. Like, it, I can't. I, I, I can't honestly remember which play it was I was auditioning for because <laughs> someone decided in their infinite wisdom to do a certain scene in the style of the Swedish chef from The Muppets. And I'm not kidding you here. But that's because someone told them be different and make an impact. And they thought... Yes, but their instinct was so far off the mark of what was appropriate for that scene and that character. Right, yeah. or the, or even thinking forward into the play itself. Yeah, they, yeah. That that was a okay. <laughs> what, what? And you, you just need to thank you so much. Yeah, I'll be in touch. Mm-hmm. And you you get you get a very clear sense of the The ones who will just make your life in the rehearsal room far more difficult than it ever needed to be. Yeah, even if they're very good. The the one the one thing that none of these rehearsal processes will ever reveal, audition processes will ever reveal, are the people who will mess you around. Right. Or the people who can't learn lines. Yeah. Certainly the latter. I I have a a little radar for the former to some degree. I somehow there's always one in my cast, so I'm now I'm out looking out for it. But it's 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 the person who is going to be will always be fifteen minutes late to a rehearsal. You can't pick that up in an audition. True, yeah. And the person who can create a wonderful character in the audition room, but who just can't cope with learning lines, you won't pick that up in an audition. Yeah. And in a way that's where being part of a larger organization you can sometimes pull on past yeah, yeah, yeah. past experiences of other directors. How did you get on with so-and-so? Uh-huh. I'm sure I've texted you a number of times. And and you find out little, okay, I can work with that by just changing the rehearsal schedule so I'll always record them 15 minutes before I need them. Or, like, I'll, I love their character work, I'll give them lines so they can just read. Right. Or run screaming and say never no 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 but if it's someone who walks in fresh from nowhere you will only find that out too late yeah agreed and and that's another diff- key difference between the amateur and the professional world is that it takes a huge amount of guts to kick someone out of an amateur cast yeah especially the more the closer and closer you get to the show yeah and I've done it and it's not fun yeah. for anybody. I've had it done to me. Because um, I, 
I struggle with lines. It's one of the reasons that I moved away from acting into mm-hmm. directing. It's because it, I still get the joy of theatre making and I don't have to, to learn it all. Yeah. And it's never nice and no one ever wants to do it because it's an admission of failure as me as a casting director. Mm-hmm. And it's a failure of me as a director to not put the support in place to get the person to where they need to be. Yeah. But it's, all, it's also that person... I just made a wrong assessment. Yeah, it's not. It's not a. I think you're a bad actor, or I think you're a bad person. It's just that it's not for the, right. for the greater good. <laughs> it's just not right for this show. Yeah, on this on this occasion. Yeah, but so okay. So there's a couple of points in there. Is there anything else from a obviously that, uh, a bit of that was for the director as well? But from a for an actor who's coming into audition, is there anything more? practical or formulaic that they can ensure they avoid or put in place to to impress you like I, I have a big thing about people being a bit more adventurous than just trying to do to to replicate something they've seen yeah. I, I like to see some sort of adventure in their delivery because from that i can say okay this that's not how we're going to do it but i know that you have the the scope within you to to yeah. push a boundary i I've certainly I've certainly done that in the past. I remember one time giving giving people the witches scene from a Beth, okay, and saying, "Right, TV cookery show, off you go." <laughs> and there were some people who leapt on that and had huge fun with it, and people who really really got lost. Yeah. And when I was auditioning, but will that be will that be a Clearly, that's a test, but is that a pass-fail test, or is that a an un, just you getting to understand? It's, it's, it's about getting to know one another. Yeah, but but I'm saying, having seen that and seeing someone who drowned within that little idea, are you then like, okay, well, maybe on it depends on it depends on the role for which I might be considering. Right, so it's not okay. It's 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 not an automatic out. Right, okay. But sometimes being surprising can almost be an automatic in. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when I. When I directed Twelfth Night, I made everyone at first round surprise me with a sonnet. <laughs> so it's just all these things just filling with dread. But you're gone. <laughs> so I, I had I had twenty of the sonnets printed out, right? And said surprise me, and some people just read them. Some people acted them out. One guy went and sat at the piano and improvised his own setting of the sonnet and sang it. And that was Feste, sorted. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was never designed to be that sort of test. It was more to see what their instincts were to be on 14 lines of text. Yeah. And to make and just to be surprising. And they didn't have time to prepare. It wasn't about coming and giving my, my best ever solid reading. It was about the ability to think on their feet. Right. And that, for me, is key, because in the rehearsal room, that's what I need people to be. Yeah. Okay. I need to be people to be flexible, to be adaptable, to react, and to listen. Right, yeah. And th- those little tests, they're, they're not determining factors as to casting, cause but they are a good indication to me of someone who actually will deliver something special at the end. Yeah, no, I like it. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I, it sounds very intimidating from an actor's perspective, and lots. <laughs> it, it, but 
it de- it does deliver results, and so it does work for me. And I, I have honed it over the years yeah, yeah. to be this this method or set of methods that work for me. Yeah, and it it gives me a huge insight into them as actors and to them as people and to them as ability to think on their feet and be be as responsive as I need them to be, mm-hmm. and not require hand holding all the time. Yeah, no, and and like you said right at the top of the interview that actually casting correctly sets you up for the whole Absolutely, yeah. process because if you if you if you get that wrong you're constantly challenged with the those who don't work together this person isn't right in that specific role you know you that, that's more of a limit on your ambition than the financial or physical resources right because if you can't get the relationships to where you need them to be yeah doesn't matter how beautiful it looks. Yeah, you, can, you, can, you can dress it up as beautifully as you like, but at the end of the day, the heart won't be there. Yeah. Okay. So, let's say you've woken up and you've got this cast in mind. How are you physically casting it? And that's not. I mean, I know you send an email out. We call them, but are you? Do you offer the top two people apart and then wait till they say no or yes and then move down, or do you? Send out your... How are you... How I, are you? I, I call it contingent casting. I even have a title, title for it. In that I will, quite often a play is built around a central performance. Mm-hmm. So you, you get that actor in place. Then in order to play their brother, you need that actor rather than right. this actor. And it, yeah. all has, it all has to flow. Yeah. And so my castings will often have, if not A, then B. So if someone turns me, to, someone was hoping for that, but was a high, higher, higher level part, but is only a, a, offered something smaller, then sometimes they will say yes because I just want to be in the play. Sometimes they will say no, and I always, I always have backups for everything right. lined up as far as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I also have identified potential understudies through through that as well because it is important if, if, if you, you probably can't cover every role but to have a have a sense of who yeah who might be asked to read in from time to time or yeah. who by being offered that could be a good developmental opportunity for them for future shows mm-hmm. because doing a few rehearsals as this character will give them right. a bit more confidence to go for something else in the future right okay all right excellent um so let's say everyone has accepted. Happy days. <laughs> You've got the cast you want, right? What is the next stage? Are you doing a read-through? Are you doing a read-through uh, and then giving it some time to percolate down and let them live with the script for a bit? Or are you doing a read-through and then next week you're starting rehearsals? How? What's? Or are you not doing a read-through at all? Or what's the, what's the process for the beginning of your rehearsal process? It varies a little from show to show. Okay. And, and the... The needs of it. It's great if you can arrange it to start with a full cast meeting mm-hmm. involving a read through, and hopefully then costume measurements. Okay. Because getting your costume measurements done early saves a lot of hassle later down the line. Yep. It certainly does. So sometimes I will have sent the script out in advance. Mm-hmm. With an expectation of anything, or just no, I don't. Okay. I don't like people arriving having learned a script. Because okay. they've already started making the decisions. Right. And that means I either have to accept their decision 
Or fight with them to wrestle. Or undo it. Right. And undoing it takes a lot more work than developing our, developing our answers to the key questions of the text mm-hmm. together. Okay. So, so, if I've got time to get the script printed and sent out in advance, great. Sometimes I'll just send them a PDF in advance and say they have a physical copy in the room. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a matter of, right, I need everyone to go and buy X edition of the play. Right. So, they're coming to the rehearsals. Let's say you do the read-through. After that moment, how are you structuring your rehearsals? So you've got... Well, how long have you got, roughly? On average, I know you said you can do six months or you can do whatever. Some professional companies do three weeks, obviously. But what for an amateur production, what time allocation are you setting aside? I would say... Between eighty and hundred hours of rehearsal. Okay. So, and that's just to clarify as well. That's not everyone at every rehearsal. No, that's, that's just that's that's the that's the full rehearsal process. Yeah. Okay. And that will be, as a rule, three three or four sessions per week, two to two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you, it's much nice, it, in many ways, it's nice to have a slow start and build up. Yeah. Allowing more time, allowing time for one-on-one sessions, but sometimes you can blast blast it through in eight weeks. Okay, and, and get 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 a good result. It it's very much down to the project. The project will determine the shape of the rehearsals that it needs to be. Okay, and are you doing it linearly? I tend to have I have three phases. Okay. Of, of rehearsal as a rule in my head it may not be explicit on paper but it's phase one is just doing the basic work on every single scene mm-hmm. getting it getting it all essentially blocked for one but getting it on its feet right having putting a shape to every single scene okay don't you... necessarily start at the beginning and work through to the end okay because it may be that this little group of actors is available. <laughs> is available, and that's what you have to work with. Yeah, it's great if you can start at Act One, Scene One, and work your way through to Act Five, Scene Two, in order. But that that doesn't happen no, in the okay. real world. Yeah. So it is about picking your moments, and that's why Phase Two is assembly, where you take all these disparate scenes, yeah, and start running them as short blocks. Right. Okay. So. You, you have the initial building blocks, then you're building up the walls. And... Yeah. So, so are you... Let's... We both know amateur actors, and we know some that take very well to just being presented with a text and a, and a, a, a space and a context and, and maybe some more direct emotional kind of guidance, and we'll go with it. We also know those actors that will have script in hand and stand in the centre of the stage, not really knowing where to go and what to do. How are you dealing with that? The dynamic of, well, both those two things, but more when you're not getting what you want. When, you, when you're when you seeing that scene, you know, act three, scene two is, is not shaping up to be dynamic enough or there's no movement or there's no, what, how, how are you beginning to counter those little, the first few stumbling blocks of actors who aren't inhabiting the, the, the same... Well, on the whole, I hope that the vast majority of my actors, because I've chosen them through my audition process, are going to be more in line with 
with my way of working because yeah. I'm very upfront about that style. Mm-hmm. But it it comes down to asking the right questions. Okay. Because at the end of the day, they're the ones who will be standing on stage delivering those lines, not me. And they have to feel the ownership of their character and their moments. Mm-hmm. And so it's making sure that I ask the right questions so that they understand their role. Okay. And yes, sometimes try try doing it that way. I will I will throw in suggestions, it's not just leaving people to flounder. Yeah. But I would much rather they found their own solution with a bit of nudging. Okay. So it doesn't feel like they're being directed, they're just being asked a question. Right. That prompts them to move in the right way. Right, okay. And if they're moving in the wrong way? If you f- if you feel the character is developing in a manner that's not either in tune with the relationship you're trying to form or is specifically counter to how you envisage that character envisioned that character being, are you? It that one depends on the play and the nature of what's going on, because sometimes their way is better than yours. Okay, agreed. Yeah. In which case, you claim that idea as your own. And I'm sure that would be in the first place. But but sometimes it is I never thought of it that way. Let's 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 see what happens if we run with this. Okay. If it doesn't disrupt the rest of the balance of the play, right. fine. Okay. And sometimes no, no that, that that just isn't gonna isn't going to work. Let's try some let's try and find another solution. Right. And again it's really rarely me imposing that solution. Mm-hmm. Working together to find that solution. Right. Okay. Is there is there any part of the the process of creating it where you become more rigid in how you get the actors to present your vision? No. No. Okay. So you, I, I only say it because it's, I know I know certain directors who who will allow some freedoms, but once it gets down to the, you know, once they begin to really want to hone the guys in. They become very prescriptive. I used to be much more of a blocker because I thought that's what directors did. Right. You tell people where to go and where to stand and how to do things. Well, then you allow the actors to do their acting bit, you mean? Or... Well, no, you control everything. You, okay. are, the, you, you, are, you are the puppet master in okay. charge of, of everything. And for this lies with the old Samuel French editions of play scripts. Okay. Because they were... They, they took the prompt books from these West End shows including the set diagrams, the props list, the sound effects, the lighting, the everything, down to which door people came through, where they moved on which lines. And people get this idea that because it's in the script, we must do it. And that's one of the joys of Shakespeare, because other than Exit Pursued by a Bear, there were very, very few specific stage directions. And what I like to do if I've got time for a show is type out the script again and take out all of the... Okay, that's interesting. I do the exact same thing. Stage directions, just, just other than entrances and exits, none of this. He said stealthily or secretly or yeah. whispering. No, let's just set up the framework of the room or the space in which we're working for that scene. Know where the geography of the space is. So, you know, stage left is going into the garden, stage right is going into the rest of the house, whatever it may be explore what the characters are feeling and doing at that moment, mm-hmm. that drives their their movements and their acting rather than because someone 50 years ago 
made this gesture on this line and someone wrote it down. So it's about understanding the structure of the play in terms of the relationships, the outside society, world history around if it is a play that needs needs that mm-hmm. to give you the broader context. Yeah. But also and right, we're now in this room on it's this time of year. This is where you've just come from. This is where you're going. Mm-hmm. Inhabit the space. Okay. I don't... So I will tell them where they're going on and off. Mm-hmm. But I won't tell them when to move, when to sit down. Right, okay. Because that should flow naturally. Okay. If it's a piece of natural naturalistic theatre. Mm-hmm. If it's a more conceptual thing, then you do have to approach things in a different way. Agreed. But... For the sort of work I like to do, it is about being as real as possible and being rather than acting. Okay. I want them to find their character, find the emotional truth at the heart of it, and that will allow them to be that character rather than just to portray that character. Okay. It's a. I want very much more a collaborative, developmental, ex- exploring style to yeah. theatre making, and so that. No, and I think there's more, again, I believe it feels like there's more joy in that for the director, for the actor, for the whole ensemble, is that you're all going through the process with an artistic eye rather than being a tool for an artist. You're not the paintbrush or the paint. You are, in your own right, one of the contributors to the the piece. Well, it, it comes down to what do you want an actor to be? Is it someone who will just turn up, deliver the lines exactly the way they've been told? Or is it someone who turns up and brings something fresh to each performance mm-hmm. so that it it's a living experience rather than a recreative experience. Mm-hmm. And I always want my theatre to be properly live, right. with actors allowed the freedom to react and develop as, as each performance goes on. Mm-hmm. You're living a series of moments as an actor, as a character, and they should be allowed the chance to live and yeah. breathe and be not be struggling to recreate what was what was done in the rehearsal room. Right. The rehearsal room is the basis on which you draw to deliver a series of performances. As an amateur, you get to do that six, possibly 12 times. Very rarely any longer than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs>